Hello, APGov. Welcome to the first review for the spring of 24. This is for the first test that we'll have on Unit 1, the Constitutional Foundations. You can find the document uh, if you want it, if you'd like to have it in front of you. On our eClass page, it is that Google Doc uh, that's in the activity feed. So uh, the review kind of feels really large. Uh, and that's because there is a pool of 95 questions that uh, you could possibly see. You're only going to answer 40. Now, the, the system, <coughs> E-Class, will randomly pull the 40 questions from those 95 uh, chances or whatever you want, however you want to say. Um, so that's why the, the review kind of feels large because I got to feel, I got to get you prepared for, for all these things. Uh, but, you know, you might not see a single question on 1.1. I think you will, but you, you might, you know what I mean? Uh, you might not see those questions. So just be aware. Uh, you need to be prepared, be prepared for all of it. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, get rolling with um, the first topic, 1.1, the ideals of democracy. So January has felt like about eight weeks. Uh, and we did this way back on like the, the second day of class that so we had just got back. Uh, from the break and all that kind of good stuff. And um, we got started with, uh, this was the first thing. So the first thing on your review is the natural rights. And just remember that these are uh, a key concept back then. And it's also something that we still hold dear today. Uh, the natural rights are those rights that we are all born with. It doesn't matter who we are, uh, what station in life we're at. Um, we're all born with these natural rights. And uh, it comes from John Locke, who was one of those one of those enlightened philosophers that the framers love so much, and you know John Locke will write that the natural rights are life, liberty, and property, uh, and then Jefferson uh, will change that in the Declaration of Independence to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <clears throat> now this is a huge deal to us today, and we work really hard. I shouldn't say we. The government works, in my opinion, one of the few things they do really a good job of is they do try to protect natural rights, okay? And that, what I mean by that is, for the most part, I think most everybody is gonna get a fair shake at their trial uh, and, and go through the court process and all that kind of stuff. Now, are there other things that they don't do so well in that process? Probably. But I, I do think, um, and if you've listened to me in class, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the government and how things happen and, and operate. But I do think they try to protect our natural rights. Um, and that, that goes for everybody. Um, so, you know, from the time you're a suspect uh, and you're protected by the Fourth Amendment to no unlawful search and seizure, uh, all the way through the Fifth Amendment, not having to talk to the police or criminate yourself, um, the Sixth Amendment, your fair and speedy trial and all that kind of stuff. Eighth Amendment, no cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, I think they try to protect those things because it is something we hold valuable. And John Locke would write, really the, the sole purpose of government is to protect our natural rights. The social contract is another idea from the enlightened thinkers, uh, Locke, Hobbes, Montesquieu, uh, Rousseau, those guys. They'll basically just write that um, it's an agreement between us and the government, and we give up our right to govern ourselves, and the government in turn agrees to protect our natural rights. That's the sole purpose of the government, really, is to protect and ensure our natural rights and, and all the things that go along with that, so making laws and policies that are going to help those. Popular sovereignty, uh, we, we use this in a couple different ways. Uh, first off, popular sovereignty, <coughs> for the most part, means that you know we, as the citizens, uh, should be the 
the main driver of policy, of laws, of policy, of, of whatever it might be, because you know the power of the government flows through us. All righty, uh, you know, not every decision should come down to the to what the people say and want and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, the majority of us should have uh, our needs, our uh, I don't want to say wishes, but things should be done to protect us and help us and assist us. Uh, and the genesis of almost every law and policy should be from something that's going on in our lives. You know, the government should be sitting around just making up things that don't affect us. And then we also talk about with states, your state sovereignty. Um, this was a big deal uh, for the, the states um, after they broke away from the English. All right, limited government. So this applies um, to restrictions on the government. It's not like small government, although I personally would be okay with smaller government. But anyways, uh, the limited government is just those restrictions. This is going to put some, some kind of governors. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a governor on a car, but it restricts your speed. Uh, we want to restrict what the government can do. And there, so there's some things they can't do. Uh, and that is what limited government means. And, and we listed those uh, in the 10th, the 10th Amendments, the Bill of Rights, um, to, to make sure the government can't do certain things to us as citizens. Uh, the separation of powers, a uh, pretty basic concept. Uh, Montesquieu is going to write about this during the time of kings and monarchs and all that kind of stuff. And just he saw one person with all the power. And so our framers took that and said, well, you know what? Let's break that up as well. Uh, and so when they pitched the idea, Madison specifically, of a, of a uh, new government, hey, we're going to break these things up. We'll have a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch to write the laws, enforce the laws, and judge the laws. Checks and balances to so to make sure that those separation powers are separated and that no one branch becomes too powerful. We have the checks and balances in place. So uh, this is that watchdog function that each branch has over the other, and uh, it allows them to stop um, one of the branches if an individual or the branch as a whole is becoming too powerful. And then the Declaration of Independence. This was what uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, to officially declare that we have uh, broken away. And we've already talked about you know, John Locke's uh, ideas in there, the, the uh, natural rights, uh, Montesquieu's ideas of separation of powers is in there as well. So uh, there is 1.1. All right, 1.2 is the types of democracy. Uh, and so the first thing on your list is the representative democracy, republic. <clears throat> so we live in a republic. You'll also see it as a representative democracy. They're pretty much interchangeable at this point in time. Uh, and that is just basically where we, as citizens, uh, elect people to make decisions uh, for us uh, at the government level. So the opposite would be a direct democracy where you know, we would take part in almost every decision. And just remember, we're too, too big of a country for that. There's too many people here uh, for us to do that. The direct democracy idea works best at smaller levels. Uh, participatory democracy. Uh, this is where we are participating. Uh, actively, okay, so uh, we uh, would be, this is kind of similar to that direct democracy where uh, we would be taking part in almost every decision and just once again, it's difficult for us to do this. Uh, pluralist democracy, this is where uh, the groups run things, all right, so interest groups, uh, business groups, whatever kind of group, religious groups, whatever kind of group you want to say, uh, the pluralist democracy is where the government is, you know, listening to these groups, uh, trying to, I don't want to say trying to please the groups, but they are, you know, 
they do play a role in the policies and that sort of stuff because the government does listen to them. However, pluralist democracy is going to say that, hey, it, it happens. And this is what Madison wrote about in Fed 10, and that's why it shows up under this one, is he wrote that factions, groups are going to happen no matter what. You can't stop them. Uh, however, our government can control them. And so pluralist democracy, uh, they do get kept in check because they balance each other out. You're going to have this group over here that wants this, but you're going to have this group over here that counters them. And then elite democracy is democracy run by um, that small elite few, whatever you want to say the elite is, whether it's the wealthy, whether it is the highly educated, um, what, whatever elite uh, status you have or want to say, uh, they're the ones that would be running the government and making all the decisions for us. Fed 10, we just mentioned, uh, this is Madison's uh, response to about factions. Uh, he said that factions are inevitable. They're going to happen no matter what, uh, but that the, the new, the big republic would be the one uh, to keep them in check versus the small republic where those factions could get a foothold and could become the majority and take control. Brutus 1 is the counter argument to almost every federalist uh, argument that's out there. Brutus one is the anti-federalist uh, paper, basically, uh, and it just is in response to all the problems and issues that could arise under the new government. Uh, and so he gets into like the necessary proper clause is going to give too much power. Uh, states' rights are going to be gone. Uh, individual rights are going to be crushed. Uh, so just uh, Brutus one, if, if you think of a federalist argument, Brutus one was the counter. All right, uh, 1.3, the government power and individual rights. So we just kind of mentioned the anti-federalists. Uh, just remember, they did eventually agree to sign off on the Constitution. They did kind of, I don't want to say give in, uh, but they they felt they were at a place where they could trust uh, and sign off on this thing. And the big thing that tipped it in their scales or tipped it to them or made them sign, not made, but got them to sign was the Bill of Rights. And just remember, first off, overall, it was a compromise. Uh, we'll talk about the comp other compromises in just a minute. But this is the one that got the Anti-Federalists to sign off on the document because one of the, the things they wanted was to see our individual rights listed because if you go through the, the articles 1 through 7, there's no mention of really us and our individual rights that are in there. And the Federalist argument was, well, you know what? This government would never, ever do anything to silence someone's right to speech. This government would never do anything uh, to invade upon someone's right to no search and seizure. And the anti-federalists like, well, we don't buy it. We want to see it in writing. And so the federalists agreed to put in the Bill of Rights, first set amendments that list out uh, the freedoms, the rights that we have. And so that's where they are. Now, for the test, you do need to memorize and know the first 10 amendments. Uh, the first one, and I'm not going to talk about too much is in each amendment because we're running out of time uh, or just for time purposes. But Amendment 1 has five freedoms. Remember, you have the right to, to speech. So free speech, you can criticize the government. The right to the press, the right to assemble, and the right to petition, uh, along with the right to religion. All right, freedom of religion. Now, within religion, you have two clauses you got to know, the establishment and the free exercise. The establishment, establishment clause, remember, says the government will not establish a religion, so there's no state-sponsored religion, uh, and also agrees to not make rules uh, that will favor one religion over the other. Okay, and we apply this to here at school, uh, where there's separation of church and state, and that's why there is no teacher-led prayer at school. But you're more than welcome to say a little prayer before this test 
as it is one of the most difficult tests you'll probably ever take. Uh, and then free exercise is going to be uh, where you're allowed to worship how you want to, as long as you're not doing those illegal things. All right. Uh, Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Uh, pretty straightforward there. Third Amendment, the quartering of troops. Pretty easy. The Fourth Amendment, no unlawful search and seizure. Remember, the police can search you one of three ways. Uh, a warrant, probable cause, and your consent. And remember, the exclusionary rule says they can't use evidence uh, that is illegally obtained against you. The Fifth Amendment protects you from self-incrimination mainly, so you don't have to talk to the police if you're detained uh, and they're questioning you, uh, and you don't have to testify at your trial. They can't make you say something that could possibly incriminate yourself. All right. Uh, the other thing it protects you from is double jeopardy, so they can't try you for the same crime twice. Uh, it's just uh, they can't continue to try you until they get an outcome that they want. They get one crack and proven that you're guilty. The Sixth Amendment is your right to a fair and speedy trial. So all those things that go into a, a trial, uh, a jury, uh, a public trial, uh, speedy. You're not going to sit in jail for 10 years before getting uh, to see a judge, um, a right to a counsel, uh, and just all those things. The Seventh Amendment is on the civil side. Uh, if you're being sued for over $20, you have the right to a jury trial uh, and most of the things that go with the Sixth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment protects you from uh Cruel, unusual punishment. So uh, two things there. The, the crime has to, to fit. I mean, uh, excuse me, the, the punishment has to fit the crime. Uh, they can't like over sentence you or the list they're not supposed to. Uh, and then you're given the right to bail and the bail has to be within reason. Like if you have shoplifted, they're not going to set your bail at $500,000 or something like that. The Ninth Amendment uh, protects us as citizens. Uh, as long as the Constitution does deny us something, then it's typically left and we're allowed to do so. Uh, I like to use the example of travel. You know, it doesn't say anywhere in the Constitution anything about travel. Uh, so it's not denied, but it's also not guaranteed. So we're allowed to do it. Tenth Amendment is the same thing, except for the states. Remember, the states are allowed to do things. Uh, and as long as the Constitution doesn't specifically deny the states uh, something, then they're allowed to do that. All right. Uh, and that's a very quick version. OK, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as we went to break, I said we'll be back. And I never know why. I always say will. And it's like there's nobody with me. It's just me. So why don't I say I? I have no idea. Um, so anyways, I guess I need a co-host is what I'm looking for, maybe. Uh, anyways, uh, the challenges of the Arnold's Confederation is 1.4. <clears throat> And so uh, there was a lot of issues that we went through uh, with the articles. Now, remember, the articles was created towards the tail end of the American Revolution, uh, and it served a purpose, you know, to, to be the first government of the United States. Uh, and it had things that it could do. Remember, we listed off some of the things that it could do. It could borrow money. It could, it could declare war, settle disputes between the states, set up a post office, things like that. The problem it ran into was it didn't have any kind of supremacy over the states. Remember, the states maintained their autonomy. They maintained their freedom. Uh, and there was no way for the, the national government to make the states do anything. And so we talked specifically about, like, the money issue. The articles was required to pay back the $27 million that had been accrued during the American Revolution. Problem was it didn't give it any way to raise the money. It said, you're responsible for this, but... You can't force the states to pay taxes. You can only ask. Now, remember we said that the Articles of Confederation government asked for $5 million that first year from the states, and they only got 400000 So it's not a good ratio. 
Okay. Uh, but let's run through the weaknesses that are listed on the, uh, the, the review. Uh, so first up is the lack of military. So two things are going on here. First off, the government can, it said it can run a military. The problem was, where are they going to get the people from? Where are you going to get the people from a, for a national military? So they could ask the states, but the states didn't have to send people. Uh, they could ask the people, hey, you want to join this new military? Problem was, remember, they can't raise any money. So there's no money to pay these, these individuals. So no one really wants to join a uh, military uh, of the national government. So there isn't really one. Uh, maybe a small band of people, but not a, a big, you know, that's going to be able to go off and fight and do anything. And that's part of the reason the Shays Rebellion happened. Uh, remember, there wasn't that national military. There's only militias in each state. Shays is going to rebel because they're not getting paid. They're, they're, they're revolutionary war vets, and they're not getting their pensions and things like that. So their houses, their farms are being foreclosed on. They're trying to stop that, and uh, it leads to that rebellion. And the, the articles is like, hey, help us. We need to send military to these uh, to Massachusetts to help them put down this revolution. And nothing ever happened. So, I mean, the rebellion didn't last very long, about a week. Um, but it's enough to show us, hey, this was a problem. The lack of executive branch, there's nobody to enforce the laws. There's no uh, individual to look to as like, okay, that's that's kind of the, the, the symbol of America. There wasn't that person. Uh, and so that's a problem, right? Uh, there's this kind of anonymous Congress, which... Who knows who's in Congress? Lack of a national court system. Remember, every state uh, could interpret the laws as they saw fit. Now, the articles didn't get much done because it took so much to pass a law, and they really only got a couple of laws passed. But had they passed more than what they did, uh, there would have been different interpretations at each state, possibly. And that's a problem. The lack of power to regulate commerce. This is twofold. First off, they couldn't control interstate commerce. So remember, we said that New York was really bad about this. New York would uh, tax other states' goods coming into their state, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, places like that. Uh, they would you know, charge them pretty heavily, all righty? Uh, and they, in turn, would then charge New York. And so that's a problem. Uh, foreign, remember, uh, England gave up talking to the Articles of Confederation Congress because they realized, hey, you know what? They're, they can't do anything. Let's go directly to the states. And then they started playing each other, all the states off of each other, saying, hey, I got this deal here. Can you match it? And so on and so forth. The lack of power to coin money. Uh, there was no ability. So every state had their own money. That's a problem. That's an issue. Um, and then one vote per state in a unicameral legislature. We just talked about that a minute ago. They didn't get much passed. Remember, the land ordinance and the Northwest ordinance were really the two main ones they got passed. <clears throat> um but, yeah, it was because it was so difficult. Nine out of 13 states, and, and every state had one vote. And, you know, if it didn't pertain to me as a state, then I didn't really care. Like, it just, it didn't, if it's not directly affecting me, why am I going to go and be bothered with voting for this? It doesn't matter that it would help my other state friend. I don't care. I'm only out for myself. There's a lot of states had that attitude. And then 13 out of 13 to amend the article. So there was pretty early recognition that, hey, this government is not strong enough. We need to put some, we need to do some things uh, to make this government have some power, some authority. And none of the amendments passed. You know, they tried to give it the ability to tax. They tried to give it the ability to raise a, an army, a military. And uh, the states just never would 
get on board with the 13 of 13. And then just the lack of overall authority. Uh, you know, we talked about the supremacy clause in the Constitution. Uh, the whole reason the supremacy clause is in there is because of that lack of overall authority. And we talked specifically about things like the Treaty of Paris wasn't being honored. Um, the articles had said that they would help the, the English creditors, they would help the loyalists, and the states were just doing nothing to honor those. And so that led the British to keep their your troops out west and all that sort of stuff. So just that lack of overall authority is a problem and does lead to the supremacy clause. All right, the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, 1.5. So first off, the Constitutional Convention Compromise. Is it the Great Compromise? You could also see it as the Connecticut, although I refuse to really call it that uh, just because I grew up with it. And it's the Great Compromise, so that's what it is. Anyway, one that combined the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. Uh, remember, uh, Madison had pitched the uh, Virginia plan, and it had those three branches, uh, legislative, executive, and uh, judicial. And the legislative branch was the one point of contention here. Well, the others would be too, but this is the main one um, because it called for two houses. And the idea was to have an upper house and a lower house. The lower house was going to be elected by the people. The upper house was going to be picked by the elite. That's what Madison wanted. And the representation, so how many people you had in the upper and lower house, was going to be based on your state population. Large states are super happy here. Hey, we're going to be able to outvote those little states. Little states weren't super happy about that, so they came up with their own plan called the New Jersey Plan. Now, the New Jersey Plan was not the outline for government that the Virginia Plan was. This was just to counter the representation. And so their New Jersey Plan counters by saying, well, you know what? Let's have representation equal. So let's have every state have the same amount of representatives uh, in these houses of, of Congress. So uh, we snap our fingers and the Great Compromise is born. Remember, it took a little bit of time and, and they eventually came to the conclusion, OK, we'll do we have two houses. You know, the, the, the Virginia plan already calls for two houses. Let's just add do do one by population and let's do one by equality. So therefore we have the house, which is by population, big states are happy there, and we have one, the Senate by equality, little states are happy there. The three-fifths compromise dealt with slavery uh, and the issue of the slave population. So population is gonna count for representation in tax purposes. So the South wants to count the slave population for representation, but they don't wanna count the slave population for taxes. Uh, the North wants to count the slave population for tax purposes, but not for representation. So they both wanted to have it their way, the way that would benefit them the most. Uh, and so the three-fifths compromise eventually happens and that's gonna count uh, the slave population as three-fifths or three-fifths. It's gonna count three-fifths of the slave population, basically. Uh, the Commerce Clause, I remember this, excuse me, I just confused myself. It's not the Commerce Clause, this is the Commerce Compromise. So don't get them confused like I just did. Uh, the Commerce Compromise deals with tariffs and the international slave trade. So first off, tariffs were an issue back then. And the North wanted to have high tariffs and they wanted the federal government, the national government, to be able to institute these high tariffs because it was going to protect their homemade goods. The South, who imports a lot of stuff, doesn't want to pay the higher prices that are going to come with a high tariff uh, on the goods that are there having to, to buy from other places. So uh, the South is also concerned that the new government will stop the slave trade. And so they make the agreement that we'll give in on the, um, what you call it, the, the high tariffs, we'll allow them if you'll uh, agree to not mess with the slave trade. 
And so uh, the delegates agreed that the new government would not mess with the slave trade for 20 years. And so if you look at the date uh, on Jefferson's, uh, I can't remember if it was an executive order or if it was a piece of legislation. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but 1807, 1808, somewhere in there is where Jefferson will, and the government will sign off on, hey, we're stopping this thing. Uh, we're stopping the slave trade. But it comes from the Commerce Clause or Commerce Compromise. Uh, all right. Let's see. The Bill of Rights. We already talked about that, so I'm not going to spend time there. Just remember it was a compromise for the Anti-Federalists to eventually sign off on this thing. Uh, and then Article 5, the amendment process. Remember, we just said a minute ago that it took 13 out of 13 states to amend the Articles of Confederation. Now, the framers recognized that uh, 13 out of 13 was too high of a bar. So we don't need to have all the states agree. However, they did want to keep the process somewhat um, difficult. We don't want just any laws, any policies being made into an amendment of the Constitution. So it is a pretty high bar. It's not, you know, unanimous consent, <clears throat> but it is still pretty, pretty high. Remember, it's a two-step process. The national level will propose, and you got to have two-thirds. Whether you do Congress or you do a national convention, two-thirds of those people have to say yes to the proposal. Okay, you got to remember those fractions and you got to remember these steps. So two thirds of the Congress, because that's the only one we've ever done, has to say yes to whatever the proposal is. If two thirds say yes, then it goes over to the states and every state legislature or the state conventions get to uh, debate, talk and discuss. They have seven years to say yes or no. You got to get 38 states to say yes. That's three fourths, three quarters. And that's the amendment process. Once again, pretty high bar. It is not easy to get an amendment. That's why we've only had 17 since the Bill of Rights. Um, but it can happen. Okay. Lastly, about the amendment process, it is purely legislative. The president cannot veto pieces of, or excuse me, amendments to the Constitution. And the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, cannot declare amendments unconstitutional. They are a part of the Constitution at that point. All right, 1.6, Principles of American Government uh, in the College Board Standards. There's separation of powers, checks and balances, and Fed 51. Now, we've already talked about separation of powers, so I'm not going to repeat that. We've already talked about checks and balances, so I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, Fed 51 is the last Federalist paper for us in this unit, and this is the one that talks about separation of powers and checks and balances. So just recall that you know, Jefferson is writing, excuse me, not Jefferson, but Madison is writing in Fed 51 about the fact that, hey, this government can become powerful because the anti-federalists are concerned that this new government could become tyrannical. And so Madison is countering that in Fed 51. Yeah, I agree. This government is going to have some power. It's going to have some authority. But we have separation of powers. We have this branch that writes the laws. We have this branch that uh, enforces. We have this branch that judges. So we're separating them out. They're not going to be together. They stay apart. They don't cross over. And then he also writes about the checks and balances. Not only do we have the separation of powers, but we also have checks and balances in place, meaning we have each branch watching the other branch. And if they start becoming powerful, if they start to do stuff that looks like it's tyrannical, then the other branches can step in and put a stop to them. Okay, so think about the veto that the president has, the impeachment power and the ability of the uh, Congress, uh, the House and the Senate to impeach and remove uh, the president and, and federal judges. So uh, that is 
Fed 51. All right. Uh, let's take our last break. I don't know why I said R. Let's take my last break and I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. Let's finish up this uh, review with 1.78 and 9. So 1.7 deals with the relationship between the states and the national government. And the big thing we're talking about here is federalism. All right. Uh, federalism, remember, we talked about this way back um, on the first few days when we talked about the ideals and the principles and things like that. And, and this was just one of those ideas. Uh, and federalism is just the sharing of power amongst different levels of government. So for us, we focus in on the, the federal and the state levels of government. Uh, they both have power and authority uh, to make rules and laws that we're expected to follow. And that leads us into the concurrent and reserve powers, uh, which is the, the next thing on your review guide. Concurrent powers are just those shared powers, the powers that they have that um, both, both groups have. So, for example, taxes <clears throat> is the best example. Uh, the federal government can tax us. The state government can tax us. Uh, and then, you know, think of any, anything else. Law enforcement, you know, they can both enforce laws uh, and things like that. So those are concurrent powers. Reserved powers are those specifically left to the states. Uh, so the states uh, get to do many things, uh, and it varies from state to state uh, because of this. Um, so you wrote an FRQ uh, on this about how um, there is diverse policies because of the reserve powers, because of the Tenth Amendment was what the, the FRQ said. But it boils down to the fact that because each state has the ability to make laws and policies uh, on their own, then they get to, to make those laws on those issues. And it can come down to, well, this state feels this way, has this value, has this idea about how this policy and law should be implemented. And then this state over here has a different view and different values or whatever it might be. Um, and so those reserve powers really allow for that diversification of the policies across the board. Uh, the, probably the, the most recent example would be abortion. The abortion was just reversed <clears throat> in 2022. And so now you have some states that have super restrictive uh, abortion laws and you have others that are, are more lenient and, and allow abortions up to a certain point and, and just it varies across the board. Uh, but because that was turned over to the states, uh, you're going to have that um, <clears throat> that diversification. The Tenth Amendment, uh, that's what gives the reserve powers. So just keep that in mind. We've already talked about that, so I'm not going to go back over that. Uh, a couple of clauses that are important here, the necessary and proper clause. <clears throat> this one is what allows the uh, federal government, specifically, usually Congress, the ability to work outside of the expressed powers, the delegated powers, the enumerated powers, whatever you want to call it, the items that are written into the Constitution. The necessary and proper clause was created because the framers recognized that they can't know everything. They can't be prepared for every single situation that's going to arise. And there's going to be some things that are going to have to be done that might be outside of what's specifically listed in the document. And so the necessary and proper clause, you might also see it as the elastic clause, allows the national government, Congress, uh, to work within the document, but work outside of what's specifically listed. So they can be kind of adjacent to uh, what's in the document. Uh, and, you know, I told you on the, the the day we talked about this, Bank of the United States is my favorite example, just because I'm a U.S. history person. Um, but 
you know, there's no mention of a bank in the, the Constitution. However, there's a mention of commerce. And so since banks deal with commerce, necessary proper clause states that the, the United States Congress was able and uh, it was legal for them to create a bank in the United States. Same deal with the, the Louisiana Purchase. There's no mention in the Constitution of expanding the United States that way. However, necessary proper clause allowed the government to do that. The Supremacy Clause, remember, this is in there because there was no Supremacy Clause under the Articles of Confederation. It was the Articles of Confederation had to basically beg the states for anything and ask the states for everything. Uh, the Supremacy Clause was created to give the new government some power and some authority uh, over the, uh, the states. Uh, and so the Supremacy Clause was created uh, and given its own article. The Commerce Clause, this comes because the states were taxing each other under the articles. I uh, remember goods going to and from different states. New York was pretty bad about this. We've already said this. Um, they would tax goods coming from New Jersey, from Connecticut, Pennsylvania, places. And so let's make sure the federal government, the national government, is the only one that can control uh, interstate commerce. And so that was created. Revenue sharing, so uh, the money. So at the end of the day, <coughs> the Supremacy Clause says that the states are supposed to do what the national government says. And they're ranked, basically. However, states don't always like to listen to the national government. And they want to do their own thing, and they feel like they can do their own thing because of the reserve powers. So it's a, a really interesting interesting relationship that the states and the federal government has. And one of the ways that the feds have found that they can get the states to do certain things is by giving them money. All right. And so that's what the, the revenue sharing comes down to. The biggest chunk of every state's budget is going to be that federal money that comes in. Now, there's a couple different types. You've got categorical grants and block grants are the two big ones. Categorical grants, these are the ones that come with some kind of strings. So, hey, you do this. Uh, and it has to be spent in this specific area, and you have to spend it this way. And if you don't do what we ask you to do, we're going to cut some of the money. All righty. Uh, not on here, but you saw crossover sanctions. Uh, and, uh, well, actually, I need to, I'm going to add it to this document, crossover and cross-cutting. Uh, crossover, remember, this is where uh, the money is tied to a project that the states want to do uh, and there's a policy that the feds want the states to do they don't always go together so uh, the example we use on the powerpoint is the drinking age the drinking age is a state policy the feds want it to be 21 so they tie road construction money to it all right then you've got the cross uh, cross cutting requirements and that's going to be where the Feds will build a law, build a policy, and they'll put some requirements in there. And if you don't comply with the requirements in there, then you lose funding. The 1964 Civil Rights Act is an example of this because there is uh, words, policy, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, there is parts of the Civil Rights Act that says if schools weren't integrated by 1966, 67, something like that, uh, those schools were going to stop being funded by the federal government. Okay. Uh, some categorical grants, project grants, formula grants, project grants. Remember, these are going to be the ones that are based on uh, your merit. You're going to apply for these. Think of the scholarships you're applying for for next year uh, in your college career. Uh, you're going to get those if you earn them. Formula grants, uh, you meet the number. 
Okay, free reduced lunch is a formula grant. Block grants, this is the freer money uh, and not free money and that the states can do whatever they want to with it. They still have to spend it in certain areas. However, if they get this money, they get to run the program how they want to. Welfare is the welfare has been turned over to the states. It's still federally funded and the states get to run it how they want to. Mandates, remember these are directives from the federal government to the states. Sometimes they're unfunded, sometimes they're underfunded, but they are directives and the, the states are expected to do them. The feds will push for mandates to be followed uh, and they'll try and flex their muscles with the supremacy clause. The ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is an example of this. Remember the states had to go back and retroactively uh, put in handicap access to all state buildings on their dime. So they weren't too happy about that. All right, 1.8, constitutional interpretations of federalism. The Commerce Clause, uh, remember, this is the one that makes it to where the federal government controls interstate commerce, and it is something that they have used quite often to get involved where the states were not doing something that the federal government wanted them to do. So think of implementing policy, implementing laws. Uh, the feds will use the Commerce Clause as a, um, hey, that has to do with interstate commerce. We're going to come in and we're going to enforce. We're going to implement that policy for you since you're not doing it. And, and I've told you the example of the Heart of Atlanta Motel. This will be the third time you've heard about it, uh, where the Civil Rights Act was not being implemented by the state of Georgia. The heart of Atlanta Motel was not serving black customers like they were supposed to. Georgia was not doing anything about it. The federal government cited the Commerce Clause saying, hey, that deals with interstate commerce, interstate travel, things like that. So they came in and they forced the hotel by taking them to court uh, to stop, start honoring the Civil Rights Act. Okay. Uh, now, fast forward to U.S. versus Lopez. So we do a little reversal here because the Commerce Clause had been expanding federal power for a long time. Uh, you know, the 1960, I can't remember the exact date of the, the Heart of Atlanta Motel case, but that had expanded power and they had been doing this for quite a while. Uh, U.S. versus Lopez is a loss, though, for the federal government. Remember, in this case, Lopez is a kid, uh, student, y'all's age, 12th grader. Uh, he brings a concealed weapon uh, to his high school in San Antonio. He is going to uh, sell it. To someone. Uh, he gets caught though and is charged under Texas law. Okay, can't have a, a gun uh, on school premises. The next day, the state charges get dropped because federal agents come in and they charge him with the uh, federal issue of the violating the Gun Free School Zone Act. So he had been charged by the state of Texas. That gets dropped because the feds come in and say, hey, interstate commerce, we're going to charge him under the Gun Free School Zone Act. Um, and he is going to be sentenced to six months uh, imprisonment, two years supervised release. Uh, he's going to fight these charges and appeal and say, hey, that you're exceeding your power basically here, Congress and, and federal government. You can't do this under the Commerce Clause. And the Supreme Court is going to agree and say that this possession of a gun here and trying to sell it is not going to have any kind of effect on interstate commerce. Therefore, the feds got kicked out of this case. All right, the necessary and proper clause and the supremacy clause we've already talked about. Uh, however, we need to remember McCullough versus Maryland. Uh, and this is where those two things were put on trial, basically. 
Okay. Remember, this happens way back in the day, the early onset of our country. Uh, and the Bank of the United States was in question here. Now, once again, like I said in class, the bank is just was in question. The real question was, can Congress use the necessary and proper clause? It could have been for whatever. It just happened to be the bank. The supremacy clause was in question. Can the federal government do this? Do they have supremacy? It could have been anything. All right. Uh, but it just happened to be the bank that drove the, the, the question. <clears throat> so uh, the, the United States government had created the bank. They put one in Maryland. Maryland was trying to get rid of it by taxing it. And so the question becomes, first off, necessary and proper clause. Can Congress even do this? <clears throat> do they have the power and the authority under the necessary and proper clause to, to do so? Uh, and the answer was yes. Okay, so the, the Supreme Court says yes, uh, that operating within Congress, uh, commerce uh, issues allows the feds to create this based on the necessary and proper clause. So the necessary and proper clause gets a, uh, a little check mark. All right. Then the question becomes, well, can uh, the states do things to the federal institutions? Can they tax them? And uh, the supremacy clause basically says no, and the Supreme Court agreed with this. Okay, so the, the supremacy clause gets uh, that check. So you really need to just stop and think for just a moment about how different this country would be had the Supreme Court ruled the opposite in these cases, uh, or in that case, excuse me. Uh, had the necessary and proper clause not been verified at this point, had the supremacy clause not been verified at this point, the states would have took it upon themselves to basically revert back to the Articles of Confederation. Because now all of a sudden this document we have, the Constitution, well, it doesn't have the teeth that it was supposed to with the supremacy clause. Congress doesn't have the ability to work outside of the document like they're going to need to. So very important decision was made in McCullough v. Maryland. All right, finally, federalism in action, the policy of making varies from state to state pretty easy. Uh, Y'all wrote an FRQ. We worked on this. Y'all had, we had some really good discussions one-on-one, I felt like, um, about these things. And just, you know, remember that uh, every state has different values. Every state uh, has citizens that value different things. And so that's a lot of the reason we're going to have the differing laws and the different policies from state to state. Um, and so, you know, here in Georgia, you have one thing, but then you go up to New York, you're going to have another. You go from New York to uh, North Dakota, you're going to have different. North Dakota to California, you're going to have different policies. And it's because the people of the state are very different. Um, and that's the big thing. And the reserve powers and the Tenth Amendment allows the states to do this. All right, guys, uh, I hope that uh, is helpful. Hopefully you're still awake. Uh, if you've made it this far, I wish you the best on the test, and I'll see you in class. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.